Welcome to the IAOM podcast, First Break Stories from the Roll Floor. I'm your host, Simon Tietke. Today's guest is Dave Renner. Dave is a milling industry veteran and skilled technical miller with a specialty in durability. Join us for the next half hour to learn about Dave and how he ended up in his lifelong passion. But first, a word from our sponsors. Bühler Insights is the digital service available from Bühler. It provides unprecedented levels of transparency for your process by capturing data from the machines in your plant and then visualizing that data in a digestible format for you to make more informed decisions about your production process. It works on a single machine, an entire plant or across a multi-site organization. Bühler Insights is a powerful, customizable and highly secure digital solution that increases productivity could be increased yield, reduced plant downtime, machine, line or plant performance analysis and comparison or reducing your energy usage. Whatever your top priority is, Bühler Insights has you covered today and into the future. Contact your local Bühler office to find out more or just search for it online today. GEA Golfetto Sangari consider milling raw materials such as maize, wheat and cereals as a promise. A promise to all their customers to promote environmental sustainability and make the most of the resources offered by our planet. That's why GEA Golfetto Sangadi's milling technology is developed with the aim of protecting raw materials in the most effective way by reducing internal friction, optimizing the layout and maximizing the energy savings. Discover how GEA Golfetto Sangadi develops and builds milling plants of any size and any capacity on GEA.com. Dave Renner here today. Dave, why don't you um, why don't you give us a little quick introduction? Who you are for people that might not know you? Um, my name is Dave Renner. I work for Miller Milling in Winchester, Virginia. I've uh, been fortunate enough to stay in this area of the country all my milling career. I worked for a couple small milling companies and wound up here at Miller and been here for 15 years. 15 years, huh? Good, good. So, do you originally from around here? Yes. Yeah. I grew up just across the river in a little town called Roarsville, Maryland. Uh, worked in a little uh, wooden frame building. Uh, I think it was a 300 sack mill uh, in uh, Boonesboro, and they expanded to a thousand hundred weight mill. So, so for for the kids that listen to this podcast, what is a 300 uh, sack mill? <laughs> hundred weights. Okay, yeah. good. I, I knew it, but there might be some people and also international listeners that probably don't know what sacks are, but. Mm. 300 hundredweights, we talk about 24 hours, right? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. not very big. That's not very big. But um, before we get into um, your little bit of a career and how you got there, how did you how did you get into flower milling? How was that? Is that something for your family did or is it? Well, I, I grew up working on a farm and uh, we would go into the mill from time to time. And uh, the, the farm, you know, when I was in high school, um, I worked or I went to school with a, a boy whose dad owned the mill and uh, just wanted to get a part-time job and uh, start walking there and he hired me on and uh, started working at the mill. I started on the 4th of July 1970 Jeez. and we did, uh, uh, my first job was they had fumigated the mill and believe it or not they fumigated the mill with cyanide and my job, <laughs> my job was to uh, go around and pick up all the dead rats and snakes. Yep that uh, were left over from the fumigation. Well, you shouldn't kill the snakes because they kill the rats. <laughs> but just as an input, <laughs> cyanide, huh? 
I don't think I don't think you could do that today. No, anymore. not today. Yeah, that's funny. So you, um, how old were you when you started working there? Seventeen. Seventeen. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's a little different than it is nowadays. Yeah. Usually, kids go to college and come out of K State and start working and try to figure out if they actually like what they studied instead of doing the other way around. And did you do any? I think you did some formal education too later on, right? Yes, I started working there, and uh, I was actually going to school and college in uh, Westminster, studying forestry, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, broke my ankle. I had a football scholarship, broke my ankle, and lost that. My boss uh, talked me into going out and taking a look at K-State, and I <laughs> fell in love with the whole process, and uh, finished up my last two years at K-State, got my degree in milling. Awesome. Been doing it ever since. When was that? When did you graduate? Graduated in 75. 75. So it didn't really take long from you starting in 70 to, you know, graduating. And then, then did you stay with that with that mill? or? Uh, I worked there for uh, almost four years. And then uh, things got slow. They lost some business. And I uh, uh, ended up going to work for Wilkins Rogers in Ellicott City. And I was down there for four years. And... Uh, Another guy and I, I had worked out a plan to try to buy the mill back at Boonesboro. Mm -hmm. And so we went back there and I worked for another couple of years and that didn't work out. So I went back to Wilkins Rogers again and I was there <laughs> for 20 years before coming here. Yeah, yeah. And well, what made you move, what made you do the move to come to Mullen Lake? Um, I always wanted to work in a mill that was more technologically advanced and had yeah. opportunities where I could really uh, put into practice the things that I'd learned. Yep. Um, so obviously the mills you worked at were pretty old-fashioned, old low-tech. Low -tech. So I like Ellis Roller Mills, I take it. Um, wolf Rolls in, yeah. the, in one of the mills and old Miag HN oh. Rolls. Yeah. Well, that's not too bad, actually. <laughs> actually yeah. I mean, 63, uh, they were made yeah. in 63. Yeah, that's not that's not too bad. I, I, I actually started on HN Rolls, too. But, um, yeah, that's interesting. And then when you came here, the mill was built already or yes yeah so a b and c mill were already running yeah good yeah a b and c yeah so just for our listeners a and b is a a and b are durham mills and, and c mill is a hardwood mill now there's d mill added yes 2012 huh? yes i think you were heavily involved with that project good good yeah and then you moved to miller milling and really started getting into the technology so things are things obviously have changed quite a bit from back in the days to today, huh? <laughs> yep, quite a bit. Yeah, and obviously you got some advantages with, with technology. I know for a fact, because you know, we work together, that you went through quite a bit of upgrades and automation systems too. Yes. And it's hard to get people involved with that, but I'm pretty sure you, you're pretty happy with having what you have. Uh, it has really changed the milling industry. And um, you know, I see what's being done here volume-wise versus how many people are working here. and seeing what was going on in some of the other mills that I've been in that didn't have the automation. It's a, it's a tremendous advantage. You think so? Yeah. You think people learn a little less about the process of milling? I do. Yeah. I think running a mill with no automation, you really learn to be a miller. Yeah. And if you're not careful, you, be, you become an automation expert rather than a milling expert. Or just an operator. Really. Yeah. yeah. How, do you, how do you think we can take care of that? You know, how do you think we... We bridge that gap, you know. That's a that's a hard question because you get into motivation, mm -hmm. and in my opinion, people tend to gravitate to the least common denominator, or 
you know, do as little as they have to to get by, unless there's something inside of them that really ticks and says, you know, that I, I really, and I've always said that milling is not an occupation, it's a profession. Mm -hmm. There's a definite set of skill sets that you develop when you're, when you're working in a mill that you can take really, you can take with you really anywhere in the world and, and put those into practice. Yeah. And some people just aren't interested in that part of it. They just want to come in, put their time in, and walk out the door. Yep. But I guess you have that as every occupation. It's just I, I. But I see that the same, the same um, issue as trying to teach people process and trying to teach people to go over the roles and when and then nowadays I mean it gets more and more automated. Eventually, I believe that the roller models gonna adjust themselves, and that's just something that is gonna be dangerous, in my opinion, on losing expertise. Right. Some something inside of me a long time ago clicked that just. How much can I do, you know, as far as packing flour? How fast can I do this? How, you know, how much can I get out of this plant without, you know, causing it to choke up? Always pushing things to the limits. Uh, when I was in college, Professor Ward said, you'll never have any problems pushing machinery to the limit. You'll always have problems pushing people to the limit. That's a good point you're making, yeah. And, and I think that's something that, that we've slowly but surely gotten away from, too. And I, th I think you see it more than I did. You, you look at the mills that have been built in the 90s and how short they are yep. and how much we try to do. Do you see mill? I mean, we can openly talk about what that seam looks like. It's a it's a double high only mill. Yep. And that was the thing that I think Bruder did in the, in the 90s, right? There's, there's a couple of them around the country. I know a couple of them internationally. And it's just not the, the mill you would build today. No. Right. And back then, I think it was people thought it was a great idea. I think, you know, a postage stamp mill, it takes up a little bit of, of floor space and you get uh, a pretty good yield out of it, but you do much better, you know, having it side by side with the D-mill and seeing what you can do with that, I'd never recommend to put another yep. one in. Yeah, there's, a, there's many things that, that go with that. Obviously, I, I think there's no there's zero flexibility with that mill. Yep. So if you have a hotter day, lesser quality wheat, you need to do something low ash, it's all not possible, really. Yeah. You, you, you're going to have higher cuts in your yield and, and maybe even in your quality. But then I think you also just suffer wear and tear so much harder. You just go through rolls more often, right? All that double high stuff, which means you grind on top, you create flour, and you try to yeah. grind it again, which everybody that knows milling a little bit knows that there's wind around the rolls and yeah. you create floating, right? So those things make a difference. But just walking into the mills and you can hear the noise difference makes yeah makes you understand it. I think the double highs have their place on the brakes. Yep. I agree. And that, not that, reduction. And that is, my opinion is to, probably as blame for you, is to save space, right? Yep. yep. I think a single high only mill is still an advantage for runnability, but we also run a company, so it's nice to have, have a little bit of cost savings in the initial investment and yep. space savings. Yeah, but I think that's where the industry goes and from now, there's single highs in the reductions. Everything that's smooth is a single high, and some double highs in the in the breaks. But yeah, absolutely makes a big difference. And, and that's you kind of got me to that point because you said you can push machines only that far. But I think um, the trend is to longer roll lengths, more sifter surface, more flexible mill. Right. Also, we built a lot of mills back then for a single purpose and a single purpose only. Like just make this kind of flour. Like to only make hard yeah. only make tortilla flour. Right, those those markets are changing and 
you have to have a mold that can change where longer molds definitely you have that possibility yeah so you have a couple of years experience milling <laughs> and now you have i mean with miller milling you have a ton of experience with durham too huh yes that uh, miller was the first place i did any durham milling and i really really learned to love that that's that's my heart and soul why is that uh, i think it it changes all the time yeah. yeah, it changes all the time, from day to day, week to week, month to month, and we see big, big fluctuations in quality depending on where the wheat's coming from, one train to another. Mm. So it's a dynamic thing, and it's it, it's just changing all the time, and it's always a challenge. I agree. And finished products are just so more. The I think the specifications are tighter. It's yes. Harder to achieve. Yes. And I'm a very impatient person. And Durham milling teaches one patience. You know, you change something at the front. You know, in a, in a normal flour mold, you wait twenty minutes. You know, yeah. pretty much everything is balanced back all in a Durham mold. So it's not that that way. Before we installed the purling, which was a, a really neat project, I used to say I don't make any changes on the B mill after two o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> because you don't you don't <laughs> see those changes work their way through yeah. for for two to three hours. So you think the purling made that process much quicker? Right? Yes. Yeah. We're taking out a lot more semo at the head of the mill, uh, mm -hmm. so it's not as, as involved a process. And you still have the runarounds that you have to manage, but yeah. not, not so much as before. I think it makes it much simpler. Yeah. It's, it's user-friendly. I agree with you, for sure. Um, I always think I can, I think Durham mill, mill smell better than hardware mills. They have a different <laughs> smell to them. And I try to explain that to people. They don't, you know, they're not milling much. They don't really get that. But I just, yeah. I love it. I like the feeling and the smell of it, and 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 the less noise. And, and obviously, it's a challenge. The, uh, the saying is that uh, milling is one of the few professions where you get to use all your senses. Yep. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Absolutely, well, in, including office engineering too, right? But yeah. then also you're out there and you you can really use all your senses, which brings me um, to another point I wanted to get your input on using your senses right and and talking about that a lot of newer personnel has a hard time is understanding how to mill right because automation doesn't form or does some parts of it how do you what do you do when you walk into a mill to evaluate I mean you obviously I know for a fact you walk in in the morning and you check your mills so what what do you think is like very very critical and you can you know if you want to you can split it between hard mills and durable mills because I know there's differences well, for, for years, I had my office here right in the mill. And I could tell from the sound of the mill whether, you know, and pretty much tell you what the yield was. And that was on Durham Mill. Yeah. And uh, uh, so mills have their, their own sound, and that, that's important for me. I can walk into a mill and tell whether things are balanced or not just by the sound. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Absolutely. I mean... You know, besides obviously standard brake releases and yeah. things like that, but and and you probably come from a time where people still check red dog a lot. I yes, it, it was it was a manual visual check. Yeah. Now we're running ashes on red dogs, reacting to that. Yeah, but obviously you can still see if it's yeah if it's good or bad. But yeah, I like the sound part, and and it makes a big difference. And all four mills here have a very different different noise to them. Yep. And you can tell immediately if something's right or wrong. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously um 
obviously um, being in the mill as an office, I think, has a has an advantage. I know we tried to move you out once, didn't yeah. we? Or a couple of times. I begged, I begged, and let me go back where I was. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I, I get that. From above and beyond service to incredible flower performance in your facility, Miller Milling Company goes the extra mile at every mill. Miller's team's dedication and attention to details helps them learn your business so they can work seamlessly as a part of your crew. Whether you need existing products or customized solutions, you can count on Miller to deliver exactly what you need. Miller Milling also works to make sure every link in your supply chain is secure so you get a reliable product on time, every time. And if something ever happens to go wrong, they always make it right. Because here, flour is more than a processed grain. It's a partnership. Welcome to Milling Made Easy. For over 40 years, Lawrence Conveying Products has been North America's single source manufacturer for all things dry bulk. Lawrence offers a wide range of pneumatic conveying product solutions including diverter valves, slide gates, couplings, elbows and more. Customization is their specialty. Family owned since 1979, Lawrence understands the importance of quality service and flexibility. Clients aren't just clients but rather extended members of the family. Save purchasing dollars by contacting Lawrence, your one-stop shop. It's the same with control rooms, right? If they're, if they're detached from, from the mill, it's often not very very good either for the, for the yeah. shift millers. Um, you, you have to get it out in the mill. I mean, that, that's the short story. You have to get out in the mill. Yeah. And a lot of guys just don't want to get out in the mill anymore. And you know, I've worked in mills, and I'll put in my plug for man lifts, I've worked in my mills that, that had man lifts and those that didn't, and I can say without a doubt, the ones that had the man lifts, the rounds were made more regularly. Yep. Even though we have a freight elevator, if you have a man lift, you're up and down in the mill a lot more I agree. Than, than you are if you don't. And now what we do have to do, you know, well not have to, but we do, we you know, do like shift reports where people yep. have to just go and check certain certain parameters of certain machines on foot that really helps to, to get them out but um, I think on the other hand automation might be able in very near future if not today to help out with that too because if you can run iPads yep you know you kind of can phase out some sort of what the what the control room is today right and maybe make it more of a mobile job you know where you're on your foot and you don't have to go to the control room to do job changes Recipe changes, chain things, you know. And the yield management systems do a lot for us, you know, and, and having alarms to be able to set on yields mm -hmm. so that, uh, you know, it flags uh, one of the mills if there's something wrong with the yield. Yeah. And I, I hope that that mobile technology, that move, the move of automation to mobile technology makes also the miller mobile again. Yeah. Right. I, I get the point of um, safety for man lifts, but I also was sad to see them go because. Yeah because of the efficiency reason, for sure. Um, since you are the specialist on Durham milling, and I don't really have had anybody on that is that much of a specialist in Durham milling, and it's probably hard, I'm gonna be hard pressed to find somebody in the country that's more of a specialist. Um, what is your most important parameter or adjustments in a Durham mill compared to a hard read mill? Oh, that's a tough one because the, the wheat changes so much from train to train. Um, what changes in the wheat? Uh, your HVAC, uh, 
the hardness of the wheat, how many yep. of the, uh, the the white yellow belly kernels are in there, and how much flour you're making at the head of the mill. But balance on uh, mid-level purifiers. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I look look at for. That's where you, where you yeah. uh, some comes from. Yep, you set your you set your breaks, you know, at the beginning, and your your in my experience, the head end purifiers in a Durham mill don't need a lot of adjustment. Mm-hmm. But the mid-level ones, and where you have designated runarounds, and that's something that's really different in a Durham mill, is you have some streams that just aren't heavy enough to be able to purify. So you bring some of that product back to the same passage and load up the purifier so you can take off some good product at the head of it. And, and, and managing is, managing those runarounds and managing those passages of the mid-level purifiers that's the key in the Durham mill. Exactly, and that is mainly due to what well, most people just, or most companies just build one size purifier. Yeah. Right, and, and as you said, you can't load them enough. So if you don't load them enough, you um, don't get the purification, right? The air just goes by somewhere. That's correct. Uses, yeah. well, how do you say that? It chooses the least least resistance, yeah. rate of least resistance, right? So it would go by the product instead, lifting the product up. So you would probably end up as dirty. Dirty semolina, right? Yep. Which means like specks and then brown black specks. So that's why we put um, runarounds in Durham mills. And I can tell you, if you tell a hybrid miller that we have runarounds, they <laughs> probably get a heart attack. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, even the, those purifiers, those mid level purifiers, you have some passages where you could say, well, this looks like really good semolina. We could make semolina here. But if you take it out here, then the purifiers further on down the mill don't have anything to do, and you, you end up shooting yourself in the foot. Three hours later, yeah. four hours later, yeah. <laughs> right? And that's kind of the hard part with Durham milling, yeah. what I mentioned. I think I got into, in that, into that a little bit earlier, where you have to have patience. Yeah. You can't most, just walk through and change months of things. Most of the bread flour mills, you know, you have instant gratification. You yep. go out here and make some changes, and the yield goes up, and the ash goes down, and yeah, I've got it. Yep. But with the Durham mill, you've got to wait a while to see the results. Yeah, it's usually a several-day process to to go and then readjust the mill and set it back up. That's for sure. But yeah, I think that's that's probably the major thing is, is roll gaps are important in Durham mills, but yeah. you usually set them and then you're good. But purifiers are probably the most important thing. And, you know, depending on what the quality of the wheat is, you know, we're constantly changing screen sizes. Yeah. Not not huge, but just a couple numbers here and there to, 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 to set it up based on the load on the purifiers. Yeah. No, and, and you're right with the quality of wheat. I want to get into that a little bit more for people that might not know the room. They don't know what, what the hardness and the yellow belly kernels are, which I talked about. So yellow bellies, you mean, is kernels that more look like a spring wheat, right? Um, actually, look more soft like soft wheat. Soft wheat. Yeah. yeah. So the uh, the HVAC, the hard vitreous amber color, mm-hmm. uh, look more like glass. Yeah, like you can like glass. nearly look through when you hold it up against and, you know, the light. If you right. if you if you would put it in your mouth and crunch on it, it would snap. Mm-hmm. Whereas the yellow belly kernels, they just kind of crush. Uh, there's no hardness to them at all. Yeah, and they're both durum, right? Yes. It's just a it's just a genetic issue or something probably during during. Growing season. growing season, yeah, amount of moisture and the yep. growing conditions. And some years you get more, and some years you get less. Yes. Some areas you get more, some areas you get less. So there's um, most of our Durham comes obviously from North Dakota area, and then um, we have mills in other parts of the country where we get um, things 
Durham from California, or it's called Desert Durham. Yes. So Desert Durham usually has the tendency to be a much higher quality when it comes to... Much harder, yeah. uh, much drier, hard to get water into it in mm -hmm. the normal temper time. Yep, that's for sure. So those mills are usually set up as like a couple of pre-tempers. Yes. To be able to get, I mean, we talk about like 6 to 7% moisture sometimes. Yes. And where your Durham comes in is what, 11, something like that? 10 to 12, 10 yeah. 10 to 12, yeah. So long story short, we have a more, more softer yellow-bellied kernels that fall apart into flour once yes. you hit them with the roll. And um, for people that don't really know what kind of Durham products are made in the U.S., it's mainly, um, some call it European fine grind, some call it 425. There will be a, a composite product out of Durham flour and Durham semolina. Usually it's somewhere between 15 and 30% flour of Durham flour contained in the product. This is a more easy product to make, I would suggest. Yes, it is. I think by the by the code of federal regulations, that anything over eight percent can't be called semolina. Yep. So they came up with a different name for a semo product that has twenty percent pan flour. Mm -hmm. So we're able to add that back into the uh, semolina, and uh, it's a softer product um, used for. I guess they still use it for all the pasta yep. products. I think it was predominantly short goods at the beginning, but I could be totally wrong about that. So if somebody knows that a little bit better, please feel free to write in. But but um, I understood from my history with Bühler that um, that that this European fine grind or the, the 425, something like that, that, that came with the um, Bühler pasta lines, I think in the 90s when they started making them, that they actually could produce pasta out of something that has more flour in it. I believe the pasta lines before that they just couldn't handle the amount of flour, and it still makes a great pasta. It's just um, it's much more efficient nowadays with those pasta lines, and that's how that came up with, with that finer semolina. Before that, it was all it was all coarser, barely any flour, and so on. The other spectrum of of semolina product that Durham mills in the United States produce, it's um, semolina. Yeah, which we call three percent. Some other people call mm -hmm. it just semolina. Or, or Italian style semolina, something yes. like that, coarse semolina. And that would be just without any flour, right? The idea is to have a minimum of flour in there. Yeah, 3%, usually 3%. And we make some, uh, what they call no pan, less than 1%. Yeah. And that goes for couscous. Couscous, huh? Yes. Yeah. And I can't, I can't remember if I, they, they, do they make, come, do they make the semolina come back it's together? It's kind of a, an agglomerated product. Yeah, I think so too, it's, right? almost the size of rice. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. And the idea there, obviously, is to not have any flour because it probably cakes up the yeah. process. Yeah. But yeah, so I think that um, there is always going to be a need for the traditional semolina because there's traditional yeah. pasta lines. There's also pasta that is just made the traditional way because people would like to go back to higher quality products to eat. But yeah, I think there are two, two ends of the spectrum. One's uh, they want the high quality, fancy pasta, and some people just want a cheap meal. <laughs> I agree, 100%. Yeah. But he has also the, the two far different spectrums of of the Duramil in the United States today, I believe. And without getting too much into details about everybody yields, but you can expect a 10%, a good 10% difference in yields. Yes, at least, yeah. yeah. So that is something that is 
rather confusing for a lot of people that um, look for their 75% plus hardware yield that there's a 10% swing between products and I think it makes durability a little bit more complicated too because you have byproducts you have to get rid of yep you couldn't before so often um, the United States is very um, simple but it's a simpler side with heartbeat flowers usually it's a straight grade flower right yep. and, and sometimes you pull a little clear yeah but often it gets put in somewhere else or goes put to feed doesn't matter but um with durability we usually have you know the semolina we have patent we have first clear second clear you know so there's a many different product that come off the mill but um, I think that changed with pearling too now yes um, it's given us a lot more flexibility uh, and we're we tend to make less of the byproducts yep oh, exactly and I think that back in the days there was a market for first second clear patent fancy patent but I think that market kind of seems to go away a little bit. Huh? There's still a pretty good market for patent and fancy, fancy patent yeah. and Clear's always been a, a byproduct and mm -hmm. always will be. Yeah. But it's it's separately sold as Hardweed Clear, right? Um, we talking Hardweed or Durham Clear? Durham Clear is Dur sold, Durham Clear is yes. sold separate yeah, than Hardweed Clear. Yeah. 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 It has separate tendencies too to, to um, use it for different products. and. Another question I have for you, maybe you can answer that. I've been um, to many mills in the US and most of the Durham mills in the history. And every time, all, all of Durham mills have pellet mills in them to pelletize the feed. And really none of the hardweed mills do. Do you know why, why that is? A Durham brand tends to be really hard to handle. It, yeah. It's a very prone to choking in the bins, very difficult to get it out of the bins. And I'm not quite sure why that is. You know, we don't take any germ out of it, yeah. but it, it's a lot finer uh, the Durham brand be, is. You think there's more flour attached to it still? No, I don't. I wonder why that is. But yeah, I just that's just something I very much noticed in the U.S. flour milling market that yeah. if there's a pellet mill for feed, it's a Durham mill. It's not <laughs> on hardwood mills, but yeah. And when we when we have the if the Durham mills are down. And we're trying to pelletize just hardweed brand. Mm -hmm. it, it takes more amps. It takes more steam. Mm -hmm. It's uh, having the A and B mill, the Durham brand in there, makes it a lot easier to pelletize. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, enough about Durham. I think we covered a good, good amount of that. Um, I wouldn't mind if you have a fun anecdote or a couple. If you have anything in your mind. <laughs> well, I don't know about anecdotes, but I will have to say that. One of the most rewarding things I've done in my milling career is to work on the AOM Education Committee and be a part of the rewrite of the correspondence course. Oh, you were a part I, of that, huh? I really enjoyed that. When I first got on the Education Committee, I said, you know, guys, we've got to rewrite this math and science part. <laughs> and we started into that and said, you know, we really need to do this whole Unit 3. And then he said, you know, guys, we really need to rewrite this whole course. So 20 years later, we got that done, and uh, I was I was really, I really enjoyed working with all the fellows that were involved in that, and it was a, a very, very, it was a great process. I bet, I bet it's a lot yeah. of work too. Yeah. When did you When did you do that? When did you rework that? I started work there in '93. I started on education committee, I believe, in '93, and I think I got off the education committee in 2000. 12, 13, right. something like that. I that forget. Was well, it was stretch. right after we finished the, the course. I just don't remember now when it was. That was a long stretch. Yeah. 
So a lot of the things people learn at the, at the correspondence course, at the milling courses, you had your fingers on them. Oh, we all had our fingers yeah. in it, you know. It was just great to be a part of it, to be able to hash over ideas and consolidate things, and get them down on paper, and it made, made you really think about what you believed about milling before you write it down on a piece of paper. It's, it's different because you, and, and I have the hard time with that too. Yeah. Like you, you know what you do when you look at a yeah. floor mill if you know what you do, but yeah. it's so hard to put it in words to even explain it to somebody. But I can't even imagine how hard it is to put it in paper to try to, you know, explain yeah. it to somebody that just gets started. Yeah. Like you, you have to be so careful that you don't assume that they know something they don't. That's that, and and being involved in that process has helped me as a manager here, because when I write up a memo, I read it kind of with blind eyes, mm -hmm. saying, eh, "If I didn't know what I was talking about, would I understand this?" Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's difficult, but I'm very happy you guys did it, and I hope um, I hope there's other people doing it on a daily basis for the correspondence cost because I think it's very important. And we use it within the company quite a bit. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I usually have one last question I like to ask people. And, and you talked about it a little bit, but I just like to throw it out there because we like to learn out of it too. So then, which is, how can you promote the job of milling grains to do that today's use and how can we add diversity? I think a lot of that goes back to a, you might call it ethics. Um, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, I got a guy, a part-time job at the mill, and he started with another guy uh, the same day. And they worked together a while, and this guy said to, to my friend, Matt, why do, you, why do you work so hard? And Matt said, well, my dad told me that uh, if you want to get ahead in, in, in business, you, you do the best you can, you put out, you do extra, and people will notice that, and they'll, they'll, you'll get promoted and, and get ahead. And this guy looked him right in the eye and said, my dad told me that if I worked hard, I was a sucker. <laughs> so it, it, it's going to have to be something that's going to come from upbringing, from mm -hmm. values, family values. I don't know how you motivate someone who is not brought up with a good work ethic. Yeah. That that's a real challenge. It's difficult for sure. Yeah, it's difficult. But I think the the other challenge is just to reach those people, right, and explain yeah. them what milling is about. Yeah, you know, that's that's just the challenge we're facing today. I think. Yeah, when I when I first came to work here, um, you know, Steve Adams asked me, he said, "You want to teach people?" I said, "No." I want to inspire people. There you go. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be a good quote I'm going to use on the, <laughs> the podcast intro. I like that. It's a good one. Well, Dave, thanks a lot for being on the podcast and thanks a lot for working with me every day and teaching me things. Well, thank you, Simon. I've learned a lot from you and I enjoy working with uh, all the staff here at Miller Millie. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Dave. Take care.